Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Spectacular as always. Thank you, Mike, for taking over earlier, because otherwise I would not be able to even be here right now. Um, all right. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 32. <clears throat> and um, last week we had Easter, so we were not in Isaiah. But two weeks ago we were in Isaiah, and we chat- covered verses 1 through 8. Um, and there we saw how ultimately there will be a king of righteousness, one that is truly righteous, who knows God and is, um, is God himself in all truth. Um, and so we're kind of in this midst of the people keep on wanting to follow things that are not God and how it always leads to their destruction. And God keeps on reminding them, no, turn toward me. Um, and we see what happens, the repercussions of when we don't follow God. So we'll go ahead to our maps, which I did include this time, which is great for me. Um, so Assyria is the number one power at the time. They're the ones who are taking over everything of the known world when it comes to this area in Mesopotamia. Uh, go ahead to the next map. Um, and we see exactly how they did it. They went north, south, east, and west, basically conquering everybody in their path during this time. Um, and then one more. And we see Judah and Israel and how Judah at this time is really all that's left with Jerusalem. Um, Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians and cast aside, and either they were destroyed or they went south into Judah a little bit. Um, So some of them did survive there. But ultimately, Assyria is the great threat that's even going to be coming down into Jerusalem, as we'll see soon. Um, But even though that's the case, the question is, what should the people be doing? And that's what we're going to be dealing with today a little bit. So starting with verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare, and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. For the soil of my people growing up in th- is growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Isaiah now speaks to the women of Jerusalem. We can't attribute the fact that they are at ease or complacent as strictly against the women only, since the male populace is certainly criticized for such things as well. In fact, we've seen how the males have been very greatly criticized as well. Um, So why he specifies the women at this point is really unknown. Ultimately, he wants them to rise up, though, against the complacency and to give ear. It means to listen intently to what he is saying to them. Isaiah then describes the coming year. While they are able to be complacent and they are able to be at ease currently, it will not be so in the future. Instead of complacency and peace, what will occur will cause them to shudder. Why will they shudder? Because the grape harvest fails and the fruit harvest will not come. While they may rejoice currently at the fruit of the harvest, the next harvest will not be as bountiful. Whether at this point they are commanded to tremble and shudder or this is what will occur is unknown. That they are either told to or will strip and wear sackcloth informs us of their attitude, which has shifted greatly. Instead of being joyful and complacent with yet another harvest, they will instead be mourning. 
This is even more evident in the fact that they beat their breasts. This act of beating upon the breast shows the heartbreak which is occurring for the people. They are able to remember the pleasant fields and the fruitful vine, but we notice it is now in the past. Now instead of a fair field where there is bounty, the soil of the people is being consumed by thorns and briars. Not only this, but the houses which were full of life and beautiful to behold are left desolate. There are none to live in or defend the palace. The city, which held a large population, is deserted. Whereas the city's inhabitants once entrusted the hills and the watchtowers to keep an eye for enemies, such places are useless as nature overtakes what was once cultivated land. Now I come to 15 through 18. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in a quiet resting place. Can take a sip of water. So the previous half of the chapter, um, Isaiah is warning the people, in particular the women, of the coming devastation. There is no mincing the words. It will be a hard time for the people. Whereas once they had abundance, they will be left with little. Now, however, the focus shifts. Instead of warning of the devastation, there is hope for salvation. All that had occurred will be the case for the people. But then, as if on on the wind, the Spirit of God is poured out from on high. Notice how the Spirit falls on all the people. The untamed wilderness will now become a cultivated field, and that which was cultivated field will become an abundant forest. The growth which comes from God's Spirit is enormous, is the point. The people have been lacking two things. The first is righteousness, which is living in a way consistent with God's character. And the second is true justice, which does not weigh one's social standing, but judges fairly. In this time, when the Spirit moves on the people, there will be justice where there was once only barrenness. Righteousness will be in the, in the fruitful field. In this, we see how Isaiah is also utilizing important imagery. Righteousness itself is the fruit of that field. What comes from a righteous people? Well, the first is peace. When we seek to live in accordance with the will of God, in step with his spirit, it naturally leads to peace between God and his people, and even the people themselves. The calamity, which has been brought upon them, has not been haphazard. Empires purposefully seeking to destroy. No, it has always stemmed from God's own hand against their unrighteousness. Once the people are in righteousness, however, there is no more judgments, no more devastation. Not only this, but it also leads to quietness and trust. The people had been hectic, running to and fro, attempting to understand the world. Now, however, they will be still. Righteousness itself guides them into trusting in God when it comes to all that they experience and see. They will not need to rely on themselves. They have found the one who, they can, who can provide, and he has been there the whole time. The people are able to rest in the confidence of God. Enemies will not harass them. Their abode will be eternal, unable to be destroyed by anything. There is no more fear for the people. They will finally be able to rest under the peace and the guidance of God. 
Now we come to the final verses of the chapter. And it will hail from the forest, and it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. These final two verses breaks in abruptly, as Oswald says. We have seen the devastation to come in the first half of the verses seen today, as well as the hope. Then Isaiah returns to the destruction motif found previously. The question is, what does it mean in context? Well, there are two likely explanations. The first is that the only way in which this righteousness will be experienced is once the pride of the people has been brought low or down. Oftentimes, the forests in the city are seen as strength. Only once the people's own strength has been eradicated will the spirit be poured out on the broken people who now realize the truth, that they are powerless without God. The second explanation is that the forest represents Assyria. As we have seen over the course of the last number of chapters, Assyria is the major threat against the people. God has promised to deliver his people from the Assyrians, and as such, the hail from God will effectively destroy Assyria. Meanwhile, the city represents Jerusalem or even God's people. It will not be destroyed, but it will be laid low because of their unfaithfulness. Despite verse 19, the chapter does end with hope. There will be a time when the people will be able to sow without fear besides all waters. The ox and the donkeys will be able to have free range over the land in peace. The growth in cattle represents blessings being bestowed upon the people by God himself. Alrighty. So the main point of these verses are to describe the coming devastation against the people of God because of their faithlessness. They have been complacent in their devotion to God, and though they reap blessings now, they will soon reap sorrow. Yet God will not leave them fully destitute. He will instead pour out his spirit on the people, and they will know righteousness and justice as the cultivated fields fields know bounty. Ultimately, the Assyrians will find destruction while God's people will be spared and will find blessing. How are we doing, everybody? Can you hear everything okay? Am I doing okay? Everything good? Okay, just making sure. I, sound, I, I feel like I sound really bad. You sound different. Okay. <clears throat> it's all right. We only got like two pages left. We're good. <clears throat> all right. So gardens, they are interesting to me. They tend to... Uh, be time-consuming. In order to cultivate a garden well, it requires knowledge, it requires patience, and a lot of hard work. The benefits of gardening well are made manifest when it is time for the harvest. Those who have properly managed their gardens, who have cared for it, will bear much fruit, whereas those who have neglected it will bear little. In a way, gardening is much like life. What we do, how we act, has just as much significance as with a garden. The way we feed ourselves, the way we manage our time and efforts have ramifications. There is a cause and effect with this world, and our lives are no different. Just as you care for the plants within your garden, so it is with life. Caring for your life will manifest in a good life. Thus Isaiah's thought concerning the lazy women and the expectation of what will occur in the future for them is of prime importance. It is possible for us to be blessed here and now, and in that blessing it can cause us to become complacent in our faith. 
This complacency then leads to devastation. I can see this quite clearly in many of our congregations and even with the United States in general. There was a time not so long ago when the church has stood on solid ground and made a significant impact on the culture through morality and ethics and even in thought in general. Currently, however, the church has become somewhat irrelevant as such things have become bywords for political agendas. It is almost as though what Isaiah has pronounced to the Judeans has come to pass in our own time. Things were looking good, yet we became complacent with our teachings and with our knowledge. The garden, which many before us had cultivated well, became wild because of our negligence, and we are dealing with the repercussions of it. Complacency in knowledge and actions always leads to this, and it should not surprise us to find ourselves in the place we are at today. Admittedly, this is a dire thought, and a painful thought to consider failure. Yet failures must be addressed in order for us to be able to move forward. Sometimes the best thing to do when the garden has become overgrown with weeds is to cut it all down and restart. Another thing to do is to very carefully take out the weeds in order to preserve what is good. In our own time, this is what we must do. We must realize that sometimes in order to progress, it is necessary for us to go backwards. It is reminiscent of a math problem. Sometimes we get along with an equation only to find that we had made a mistake somewhere. It would not do to continue forward knowing that the mistake was made because then the answer would come out wrong. Instead, we would need to retrace our steps. And in retracing our steps, we can pinpoint where we want to stray. So it is with progress. Sometimes it means going backwards is something necessary in order for us to move forward. When it comes to the church, the best thing we can do is look back on the scriptures for guidance and for wisdom. To reflect on those who have come before us in church history, seeking the insights of those who came before to continue to guard ourselves by cultivating our personal gardens as well as our corporate garden, which we all belong. But even now, the analogy is failing unless we understand what the fruit must be. It is easy to discuss gardening. It is easy to discuss what kind of produce, flowers, and herbs we plant in our gardens. It is different, however, to consider it with our own lives, our church community, and the communities in the world. Indeed, what is the fruit of our gardens? What is it that will establish what it means to have a good garden? Well, we know from Isaiah what it means to have a bad garden. It means briars and thorns and thistles. It means the cultivated plants being choked by the wild plants. It means complacency and faith. Indeed, in our current culture, the world sees briars and thorns as fruit, which should be cultivated. That's how they define it. Yet there is hope for us as there was hope for the people in Judea, in Judah. We learn in this text that though the harvest is now dwindled, it will not last forever. Indeed, there will come a time when the Spirit of God would be poured out on the people. This would lead to even the wilderness becoming a fruitful field, and even the once fruitful field becoming like a bountiful forest of life. What are the words utilized to express the fruitfulness of the people? Justice and righteousness. It is when we seek justice and righteousness we are able to experience the great peace and rest and trust in our God. Yet we notice it is not a justice or righteousness which is defined by the people. No, 
It is by the spirit of God which dwells within the people which leads them to such higher ideals. That is the reality of our situation today. It will not be in our own thoughts or our own understanding which will lead us out of the wasteland we currently see in our society and in many of our congregations. It will not be when we bend the knee to the ideals of the world. No, it will only be when we are led by God himself which we will begin to see the fruit of true justice, true righteousness, true peace, true quietness, and true trust in our God. The turmoil of our times will become something insignificant in comparison to the reality that we find with God Almighty. There are many who feel overwhelmed by the current culture and society. It is easy to become so. The wildness of our world seems incredible at first glance. It seems impossible the world has succumbed to such reckless thought, such obvious disdain for truth. It can make all of our heads shake and our hearts grow faint over how we can see the world blasting at the speed of light directly into an immovable wall. Yet the word incredible is the only word which can be utilized in such a situation. In such times as these, the only question we need to ask is, what can we do? The answer is, turn toward God for our wisdom and guidance. It is only in him we will find the answers we are looking for personally and corporately. It is only in his wisdom we can overcome the challenges of the world we are experiencing. The only way to grow a garden in this world is by faithfulness to God. It is the only way for us to grow as individuals. The only way for our lives to have any meaning or purpose. Without God, there is none of these things because without God, there is nothing and therefore we are nothing. Yet in the presence of God, we find our hearts at peace and there is rest, not for a short duration, but for eternity if we should seek him. He is the ultimate gardener. He knows that which will provide the greatest abundance. If this is the case... It seems more reasonable every day to turn toward him and his spirit, trusting in him to provide us with his wisdom to navigate this hectic world. And trusting in him, we will find righteousness swell within us to the point of bursting, an eternal foundation for justice which can last for all generations. Indeed, we find this very thing in the person of Jesus. He is the one who has poured out his spirit on our dry deserts and calls growth. It is his spirit which causes our minds to no longer be broken by sin and death, but to be transformed by such a great renewal, which leads us ever into the truth. So the option remains before us. God continually leaves it in front of us. How will your garden grow? Will you decide to follow your own path, which leads to wild briars and thorns and thistles? Will you seek God and his spirit to lead you into greater knowledge of himself, which leads to an abundance of fruit, not fruit made by our own hands, but his. As we have seen previously, God presents us with life and death. He urges us to choose life. Let us not be hindered by the world around us. Instead, let us each seek to grow a garden full of righteousness and justice. Not a righteousness and justice defined by the world, but defined by God. So looking at the options before us, we must ask again this question. How Will your garden grow? So naturally, I think that this leads us to the gospel. Um, And it's in the gospel of Christ that we have our ultimate foundation for all of reality, all that we experience. 
From the beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega, we find that it is in God that we find sustenance and we're able to find a sustainable uh, understanding of all that we experience. And it all begins with our origins. Where it all began? Well, it began with God and he created all that we experience today. And last of all, he created human beings to bear his image so that we could have um, true value and purpose and meaning in this world. It's because he exists that we have these things to begin with. And when the world tells us that we have them because we just do, they're stealing from what God has done. It's a terrible thing that the world does when they tell you that you have value and purpose and meaning, and yet they also tell you that you're made of nothing. It doesn't make any sense. And it shows you just how wicked we've become when instead of bowing down and saying how great God is for creating us in such a way, we steal instead. Indeed, and this is what is the problem. This was the problem with the people of Judah, is that they would continue to seek other means instead of God. They would look for other sources of power to sustain them. I mean, the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, if anyone's read them recently, well, they'll know just how often these people would turn to anything other than God. And we do the same thing today in our own culture, in our own world. At this last business meeting, I talked about how paganism is on the rise. How in certain school districts in California, it's demanded that they praise and worship gods of the Aztecs. Meanwhile, in our own area, in Tioga County, there are people who worship crystals, believing that they get their power from crystals. Why? Why are we trusting in pagan thought? Why do we turn toward nature in order to sustain us? Because the truth is it can't. It's just a rock. And those deities, they're dead. (laughs) They're nothing. Not in comparison to God anyway. And so when you see how often we steal from each other and then ultimately we steal from God as well, it's no wonder why he gets so angry with people. Because that which was created so wonderfully, his image bearers, turn away from him. We deserve judgment because we are wicked people. It's as simple as that. But, like we learned in today's passage, thanks be to God because he has sent his spirit. And that it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time, space, history, and flesh that we find our redemption. And that through the same Jesus, we know what true righteousness is. We know what justice is. Our world, if you haven't noticed, these terms, justice in particular, it's a a buzzword right now, right? Because people want it. Well, guess what? In Christianity, we have the answer. We know what it is. And it's found in this person, Jesus. You know, the whole world is trying to define it. We have a definition. It's found in God. And so we rejoice because we have been redeemed and his spirit has been poured out on us if we believe and if we walk in step with the spirit it leads to peace gentleness kindness self-control love grace and mercy all the things that this world lacks on its own and where is it leading us to well if we don't believe and we continue our own way it leads to no life it just leads to death 
But if we follow after God, it leads to eternal life, eternal peace, eternal grace, mercy. Isaiah keeps reminding the people, turn toward God, turn toward God, turn toward God. In our present culture, our mantra is the exact same thing. We all must seek to turn toward God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much because you are a mighty God. You have sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. You have taught us your ways through your scriptures. You have given us knowledge of yourself, of how we are to be in light of who you are. And Lord, we rejoice in this because without you, we would have no foundation. Instead, we would be aimless in our ways. But you have shown us the way. You have shown us the truth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to lead us into that truth, that we would not be deviated by what is false in this world, which keeps on trying to get our attention and keeps trying to say, turn toward me instead. No, that we would only seek you. Because, Lord, you are the one true source of power. You are the one true source of all that is good. There is none like you. And, Lord, it is from you that our gardens grow. So, Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless each of us with holiness, with godliness. And we ask, Lord, that you would even bless the culture around us and that we would be the vessels of your glory so that this world would know that you exist, that you are great, you are mighty, and you are all that we need. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.